Did you know that amino acids are known as the building blocks of life? And getting the optimal ratio of amino acids in your diet is critical to staying healthy and maximizing your peak performance? I know firsthand how critical it is to stay healthy. Therefore, I've been on the lookout for quite some time for something that's 100% science-backed that can enhance and extend my peak athletic performance. That's why I'm so happy I recently discovered Perform from the Amino Company. Perform is a patented blend of essential amino acids that works to improve strength, focus, and endurance for peak athletic performance. Perform is scientifically proven to help revolutionize your workouts. Perform is an easy-to-use powder that you can mix in your water bottle for a delicious drink that keeps you operating at peak performance. Just drink it before and during your workouts for best results. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com genius. Don't forget, once you're there, use coupon code genius for 30% off at checkout. The website is aminoco.com slash genius. Then use the code genius. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Good Question Podcast. I have uh, Peter McLeod. We're going to talk about some responsible government, democracy, and some other forms of that. He's the founder and principal of Mass LBP. So again, we're going to talk about perhaps certition, civic lotteries, citizen panels, those kinds of things, uh, alternative forms of um, I don't know if they call it governance, but alternative forms of decision-making within government. So, Peter, thanks for coming. Hey, great to be here. Very happy to join you. Yeah, tell me a bit about your history. How did you get into this area of study? It sounds very unusual. Well, uh, I suppose it is, but hopefully it's becoming uh, less unusual by the day because, I mean, look, most people that are living in any of the world's major democracies feel as though things just aren't quite right, or at least they're not working the way they're supposed to. And all of our work at Mass, an organization based in Toronto, Canada, it's been around for about 15 years, has been about trying to improve the relations between citizens and their government. The way that we try and do this is to address one of the things that is probably among the most glaring shortcomings of our democratic system, one of the most basic. How do you have a good public meeting? How do you bring people together so that they don't end up shouting at each other, right? So they don't end up being well, walking away feeling as though the decision was already made, the fix was in, nobody was actually that interested in hearing from them. How do we bring people together in such a way that we actually learn from one another, get value from those conversations, and ultimately get the kind of mandate that governments need to make difficult decisions, whether they're very local or whether they're much more consequential and national. Well, governments seem extremely happy to make their own mandates with no one's input, especially the past few years. Is there a desire on the, on the part of government even to do this, or where does this come from? Well, look, I, I think we need to differentiate between big G government and maybe small G government. You know, when most people think of government, they think about the president of the United States, or they, they think about their governor. But of course, our societies are governed by 
tens of thousands of people who are in positions of authority. These are the CEOs of hospitals or the commissioners of public works. And it's in that level of government that many of these public servants find themselves having to make really difficult decisions. What services are available to patients? What infrastructure should be built? How do we pay for it? And, you know, I think they're actually often very sincere in in wanting to be able to make a good decision. The difficulty is that the, the mechanisms we have to try and canvas people for their views often lead us down the wrong path. So, you know, you can survey people, but that's really only gives you top of mind opinion. It, it doesn't give you someone's perspective once they've had a chance to really think about it or maybe hear a contrasting perspective or or maybe be Mm. a little bit better informed about it, right? So we, you know, town hall meetings have lots of problems. Surveys don't give us enough information. Uh, And then, yes, in that vacuum, I think a lot of these public authorities, sure, they, they find the whole thing just so frustrating, so difficult, that the public, that in a democracy should be a really important resource starts to look like a risk. And what do we do with risks? We try and manage them. And that just pisses people off even more. What do you mean the public seems like a risk? Do you mean public opinion or what do you mean about the public? Well, look, if your experience of uh, the quote-unquote public is running a town hall meeting, right, and you are the, uh, the head of a transit service or the head of a housing authority, the folks who show up are often very convinced what the right and the wrong answer is. And they're not that willing to listen to to others necessarily. And, you know, you kind of feel as that public official, maybe, maybe quite vulnerable, like you could be attacked by, by folks. And, And so that's what I mean, the experience of the public isn't a constructive one. It's actually one where people then start to feel threatened. And, and then what do they do? They have fewer public meetings, they ask fewer questions, they reduce the amount of time for people to provide input. And that just winds things up even more. And, you know, I don't think the quote unquote public that shows up at those meetings are fundamentally antisocial, or I don't think we should discount their views whatsoever. I think dynamic, that risk dynamic is actually a product of, of just really bad process design. You know, the one thing that terrifies most regular people is that microphone standing in the middle of the room and having to speak in front of strangers. Even if they were there to like provide congratulations, their hearts would be pounding, chemicals would be flowing around in their brains and winds people up. So, you know, the work that we do at Mass at a very fundamental level is say, say, okay, public authorities need good public input. And how do we work with the public as a resource to provide that input? And then, yes, we do more elaborate and I hope democratically consequential things, which is fundamentally about changing the way our democracy will work in the future and extend the privilege. We like to say the privilege of representation to far so, people in our society. So I'm just being totally honest. As, as a citizen of where I live, I know it's not fair, but I expect my officials to do the right thing and not do things that will hurt me. And I also don't have the time to sit there and weigh in on every decision, I feel like, because I'm busy with my own life. Totally. I also feel like I don't get asked either. and They just do (laughs) stuff. And then it's very hard to do undo something that has been decided by, you know, whatever level of government. And most people, again, don't have the time. And they're like, forget it, you know. 
And it, yeah. again, the, the corruption factor too, or the, you know, when you see corruption at the highest levels, then you have to assume there's probably corruption at all levels. So the whole thing is just kind of like a thankless enterprise, unfortunately. I don't know what to do about it. I empathize with, with what you're saying. You know, one of the, I think it was George Bernard Shaw uh, said that the, the problem with socialism was too many meetings, right? Like people have better things to do with their time than to show up at lots of community meetings. I don't think the answer is that we need to make sure that everyone is just more engaged. I think we need to have better mechanisms to see that people who, to see that the general public, broadly speaking, does have a way in to influence the decisions of our deciders. Uh, it doesn't need to be you five days a week or even five times a year, but maybe it's you every five years, actually setting aside a day or two and serving on a, we typically call them citizens assemblies or citizen reference panel, where you actually get to like learn about the thing that you're being asked to have an opinion about. And not just from one vantage point, but a bunch of vantage points, provide that perspective, have it all happen in a very transparent fashion where it's documented, where other people can refer to it, where the media can cover it. And then decision makers have a really high quality source of citizen guidance. And that's the piece that I think is missing. So what are, what are some examples of when you've seen this in action when there's a citizens council you know, to give input on a particular issue. Like what, you know, can you describe like what happens? I know how important amino acids are for optimal health and athletic performance. I've been on the lookout for something that can help boost athletic performance during my workouts. Further, something that tastes great and is easy to incorporate into my daily routine. Then I found the Amino Company, which offers 100% science-backed amino acid formulas. I tried their workout formula, Perform which has been scientifically proven to improve muscle performance during exercise, reduce fatigue and recovery times, and increase the gains from workouts. It's keto-friendly, soy-free, vegan, gluten-free, and without any nasty GMOs. Thankfully, I found a formula that has clean ingredients and is great for your everyday routine to help give your body the fuel it needs to perform at its best and recover faster and stronger from workouts. Perform is formulated to minimize muscle breakdown during exercise and maximize muscle growth after exercise. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com slash genius. In a clinical trial, muscle protein synthesis from exercise more than tripled by using Perform as compared to whey protein. Amino Company's Perform was created by former Harvard professor and world-renowned clinical researcher, Dr. Robert Wolf. As a competitive athlete, Dr. Wolf has completed an unbelievable 62 marathons in under two hours and 30 minutes, set national age group records, and is still running and fueling his body with Perform at age 75. If you're looking for a nutritional advantage when it comes to boosting your peak athletic performance, I recommend you give Perform a try. It's three times more effective on a gram-for-gram basis than any protein source. Again, right now, you can get 30% off by using code GENIUS at checkout when you visit aminoco.com slash genius. Absolutely. I'll give you a few very concrete examples. I think the broader point to make, though, is that this is part of a wider global movement to re-energize democracy. The OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's the, the rich Western countries largely 
you know, they, they've been following this work. And about a year ago, they put out a, a major report called the Deliberative Way, showing how there have been more than 600 projects like the kind I'll describe from the national level to the very local level that have involved citizens in just a much more real way. So if you come to Toronto, and I hope you will, and you fly into Toronto Pearson Airport, um, the time of day, the route that your plane follows, various other operational details have been in part determined by a randomly selected jury of citizens that lived in various distances from the airport. Why did we do that? Because major global airports are really noisy and those flight paths have an enormous impact on the people below. Well, if you just let the people living immediately close to the airport decide when and how the planes come in, you wouldn't be allowed ever to have many planes. The airport plays a larger economic role for the region. And so you need to have perspectives of the people who aren't as immediately impacted and are thinking about that greater good. Well, this group of 36 people who were randomly selected spent three or four Saturdays learning about different facets of the airport's operations, the economic consequences of various strategies, and provided a unanimous set of recommendations to the airport, which they took up. If you have a piece of ID in the province of British Columbia, some of the privacy safeguards related to the chip that's on that ID was developed again by a randomly selected group of citizens. If you take the subway in Toronto, uh, the regional transit plan governing billions of dollars of investment was in part developed by a randomly selected group of citizens. Uh, and most recently, we brought together a national bilingual citizens assembly on regulating social media to advise our Minister of Canadian Heritage on the kinds of rules that people want to see to govern the likes of Facebook and, and Twitter, which many people would acknowledge are having some serious and perhaps unintended consequences. So those are a few examples. But what does one of these efforts look like? How are the people contacted? How are they selected? How are they? Yeah. Well, I'll take you through it. There are two pieces to this. The first is called a civic lottery, and the second is called a citizen's assembly. Although sometimes you hear it referred to as a citizen jury or citizen reference panel. The first is the selection process. We call it a civic lottery because we want people to feel good about winning. And believe it or not, in Canada, we've sent hundreds of thousands of letters on government stationery to people's homes, randomly selected. And there have been processes like this in the US and the UK, and Netherlands and Denmark and France, you name it. I can point to an example of a project like this in the country. In any event, we send out typically 10,000 letters. We ask people to give us maybe 40 hours of their time, like four or five Saturdays over a period of several months. We tell them that they're going to be doing something real. They're going to help us solve a problem. It's not just about come tell us what you think, come do some brainstorming. We put them at the decision-making table and we challenge them to come up with a consensus view. So from among the 10,000 people, we'll typically get maybe six or 700 people who will volunteer and we'll randomly select from that pool of volunteers, a group that matches the demographics, the jurisdiction. It's always going to be half men, half women. It's going to be balanced by ethnicity, uh, by geography. And that ends up being a proxy often for, for income as well. In any event, you get a, a group that is like that community in a room. You develop a curriculum. 
You ensure that they get to hear from different sides and they go through a learning process, which is not just about learning about the content, but also learning about how to have a fair exchange of views, right? Because it's not something any of us get a lot of practice of. And by the end, in their own words, under their own hand, they will have written a 20 or 30 page report that lists their recommendations and advice to government and has to be a, a consensus on those recommendations, though any member can also write privately their own minority report that would appear in the appendix. So that, that's the flow of the... Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers, because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. Process. Why, why do you need a consensus? Why not report the, the split to the, ah, the top decision makers? Why hide that's it? Such a, that? Well, I don't know if you're hiding it. You know, I think that you often unlock creativity when you challenge people to come up with a consensus view, that you have to make it work for everyone. This era of democracy that I don't think is very healthy is this focus on majoritarianism. The idea that the winner takes all 50% plus one is enough to run the table. Well, what about the 49? When you insist on consensus, you force people into a conversation about trade-offs and you force them to actually have to take account of the needs of people whose perspectives, their requirements vary. And I think that's actually healthy. Democracy, to my mind, is actually about how we try and get in each other's shoes, in each other's heads, and try and make things work for everybody, not just ourselves. Well, I don't know. I mean, look, I've done a lot of surveys where I didn't want to answer the The answer wasn't either of those, and I was forced to put something. So having people come to some kind of consensus, I mean, if someone really disagrees, they don't want to come to a consensus, why is that a bad thing? Well, let's take a specific issue, because a lot of the time, of course, we're, you know, we're well, having let me, to let make me some choices. With, let me prime yeah. you with one thing. Let's say we're voting on an issue, yeah. and there's three elements to it, and I just, I can't go along with element three. I just can't. But one and two are fine. So therefore, mm -hmm. I won't be the consensus of everyone else there. And I don't, you know, I just, I say, I, I just cannot sign off on this. I can't give my consent because number three is just anathema to me. I can't do it. So what happens yeah. to my, my vote? The thing is in these processes, there's no voting, right? There's, there's conversation. And if the, if the room doesn't, you know, hasn't reached consensus, then we keep talking about it. And I guess I'd want to know if you were in one of these, these groups, I'd be asking, okay, so you can't sign off on three. All right. What could you sign off? Are there some compensatory um, measures that we could implement? Like, what is the exact nature of your concern? And, and the group would try and, and satisfy that. Now, if at the end of the day, you're like, I can't agree to three, no way, no how. 
okay, but you can't agree to one and two. So the report would reflect that there was consensus on points one and two. There wasn't consensus on the third point. And as I mentioned, you could write a minority report at the end of it that sounded off and said, all of this was terrible. I disagreed. And here's my view. It's great. But the reality is that most of the time, having run 40 of these different assemblies, there's very rarely any strident disagreement. It's a little bit like, imagine you got to go on holiday with your family, right? You can't go to two places. Yeah, you could go to one place. So how do you figure it out? You're like, okay, well, this year, honey, we're going to go to the south. And next year, honey, we're going to go to the north. You find ways to work it out. And that's what we're challenging people to do, to make compromise. Yeah, that's good. If you do that, then then that makes sense to me. And I agree. I just, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about federal government, you know, the bills that come there, they always seem to have these, you know, either poison pills or stuff in there that make, has nothing to do with the bill. And it just gets, you know, it's like a Trojan horse. So you know, how do you avoid yeah. Trojan horses in these scenarios? Like one thing I would guess, just speculating is, the narrower the issue, the easier it is to get consensus that makes sense. But also to well, keep out non, you know, issues that have nothing. I mean, the, the whole business about the, the U.S. congressional process and, and earmarks and all of the ways in which bills get larded with things that have nothing to do with their original intent is a separate and very distressing phenomenon. Probably a better parallel is to the committee work that might occur where there's a task force on X and it has several members of Congress on it. You know, they're, they're going to focus on that issue or maybe it's an expert panel that has been uh, commissioned by either the White House or the House of Representatives or the, or the Senate, which has a very specific mandate. I'm not sure I'd agree with you that it makes it easier necessarily. I'll give you a specific example. We had two municipalities. Were they going to amalgamate? You know, this is a fabulous political question because there's no right or wrong answer. You know, a lot of it has to do with values. It has to do with history. It has to do with sense of community, a sense of belonging. Ultimately, people from these two communities had to work through. Yeah, they looked at the budget. They looked at, you know, the water systems and they looked at, you know, the police response and fire response times and all of the important kind of technical matters. But at the end of the day, they had to decide whether they wanted to, you know, tie their fates together or not. And uh, it's on those kinds of questions that these processes are really great, where there's a clear mandate, there's something consequential at stake, and you give people the information to to find their way to a shared view. Yes, forgive me, I've become very jaded, as you can hear. But, um, which brings up a question, like, do you encounter that very much in the groups that you deal with? Or are they all like, you know, Canadians seem to be particularly affable, nice people, just in general, but um, do you find a lot of... <laughs> You find difficulty that people are jaded, they have preconceived notions, and it has to be like a cooling off time or a time where they're like, you know what, this isn't what I expected. Actually, it's okay, type thing. You know, I, I think a lot of people come into these processes with some real concerns. After all, their their whole their experience of government, their experience of politics, whether it's in Canada or the United States, is, is not particularly positive. And Maybe you so, should do one of these issues with like a bunch of New Yorkers, like a bunch of grizzled ah. old New Yorkers. It'd be much tougher, I think. I'm not sure about that. You know, the, the thing. I'm joking. Um, and I'm not. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, don't worry. We, we've got our own sets of kind of grizzled Canucks tucked into various communities uh, as well. But, you know, America has this really, really important tradition of civic republicanism, which, of course, has nothing to do with the Republican Party. It's that kind of Main Street USA sensibility where, where volunteerism 
has and continues to play such a role in American society and, and life. And, and whether that's in a church or whether that's in a community organization, so much of the social fabric has been grounded in these kind of traditions of community and mutual assistance. I, I actually think that, yes, I, I don't want to take on Roe versus Wade. I don't want to take on climate politics. I don't want to take on gun control, right? Right away. Let's, let's walk before we run. But I actually think at the local or state level, there'd be tremendous opportunities to demonstrate ways that Americans would innately and instinctively actually come together to try and solve problems because Americans are also really pragmatic people. I think right now, I mean, if I'm editorialized, I think you're, you're trapped by big money politics and certain elements of the media and social media that are just inflaming tension. And you can run, you can run all of this in reverse. If you can build mechanisms that inflame polarization and controversy and sensationalism and misinformation, you can also build mechanisms that are more pro-social, that bring people together, that help them focus on real things with quality information. We're not making anywhere near a comparable investment in the mechanisms we need to run a healthy democracy. Instead, all of the money is in the systems that are breaking it down. Yeah. What about a preparatory step? Let's say um, there's a town that, you know, whose leadership wants to embrace this model on a regular basis. Mm. They have to first lay the groundwork and say, for instance, like, um, well, you know, I thought about this. Like I live in Austin, Texas. You know? Yeah. And there's a, like, a little over a million, million people. Here. So I thought, yeah. hmm, you know, what if the government here, the city of Austin said, like, look, in order to live in Austin once a year, you got to spend four hours like doing some community service for the, for the city of Austin. We'll feed you. Maybe it'll pay you a hundred bucks, whatever. But and I thought, oh, you know, that, that's about 20,000 people a weekend. If they did yeah. that, imagine all the stuff yeah. they could do to radically transform the city for the better. But so going back to this other example, of, you know, let's say, again, there's a town that wants to embrace this method. Do they need to do any preparatory work? And meaning like uh, mm. have a referendum that says, look, you know, to be a member of this town, you do have to do a little bit of, of work on deciding on issues, you know, once a year or two issues a year or whatever it may be. By living in this town, you agree to at least spend an hour or two contemplating them and giving your honest opinion. Mm. I, I think you're onto something really, really powerful and, and exciting. I think it illustrates the fact that actually some of our problems in society, even though there's such like grinding poverty and such disparity between rich and poor, some of our problems politically are problems of abundance. You know, if you gave Austin City Council the labors of 20,000 people a weekend, they would have no idea what to do with those people. It would be just surplus energy and labor that right now there is no mechanism, there's no infrastructure to take that energy and direct it in a, in a positive direction. So I, I actually think that's a really great creative prompt for a mayor to say, if you had 20,000 people every weekend, what would you do with them? Right. I don't have an answer myself, but I think these are the kinds of questions we should be asking, because if we're going to address the the real, I, I think, tensions in our society, tensions that are breaking down our ability to find common ground, and then we, we have to come up with ideas that work at scale. And scale means finding things for tens and hundreds and thousands and millions of people to do 
that are pro-social, that give them the sense that I think most people want, in which they often turn to reactionary organizations to fulfill, which is a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging and a sense that their voice counts. I think that's why populism is often effective. But we run our societies as though the public is a sort of byproduct of that society, not absolutely intrinsic and integral to it. Well, I mean, do you ever have trouble finding people in these councils within a given city or area? Never. Okay. And they don't balk at the time commitment or any of the others. Like, what what are some reactions you get from people that are, oh, uh, you know, positive or negative reactions? Like, what, what kinds have you gotten? It's such a range. And, and it's pretty funny too, because, you know, you, you make all kinds of assumptions about, other people, right? So you'd say, oh, you're doing something on transit. Well, the only people who are going to volunteer are those who ride transit or those who hate transit or those who have a terrible commute. Well, no, people volunteer because they say, actually, my uh, my grandpa used to drive a streetcar. Uh, I love my grandpa. Somebody else says, I just moved to this town. I thought it'd be a way to meet people. Uh, somebody else said, well, I started engineering school, but I never finished. So I thought this would be a way to like, you know, check back in with some of the, that stuff. Somebody else would say, well, I didn't sign up. My wife signed me up. She wanted me out of the house for four Saturdays. All of that's great. All of that's great. Somebody else says, look, I'm new to this society. I've just immigrated here and I wanted a chance to give something back. Somebody else says, oh, I just want a chance to learn something. So the motivations are, are really, really varied. And that's, that's right. That's good. That's appropriate. And, and it isn't that you should volunteer every time you get one of these letters. But it would be a great thing if just like everybody knows somebody who's maybe served on a jury, which admittedly has a lot of problems with it. But, you know, we accept the idea of jury trials in part because most people know somebody who's been a part of it. it it's, it's the other part of our democratic experience. I, I just think it's remarkable that, you know, we venerate democracy and yet so few of us ever have a chance to play much of a role in it. You know, pay your taxes, vote every few years maybe serve on a jury or know somebody who has once in your life. That's about it. That's all we ask of people. That doesn't forge much of a connection. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That's good that you get no resistance. You get plenty of people. Is there anything interesting or unusual in the dynamic of how people interact in these sessions? Like, you no, know, I would guess you sat in on a bunch. What, what jumps out at you? The good, the bad, the interesting? Well, hmm. part of it is that uh, I mean, as you observed, this idea of consensus initially is maybe um, maybe uncomfortable. And uh, we, we have so many ingrained ideas about, like, what democracy is. The idea that we should vote, right? That, you know, and the majority wins. But we know that democratic life is more complicated than that. So one of the things that's really incredible is I'm chairing one of these processes. Is everybody comes in, I tell them, how exceptional it is that they put their lives on hold. I mean that they've all worked, you know, most of them have worked a full week. They're taking time away from their loved ones or a chance to rest or have some fun. And there they are. They're spending four Saturdays thinking about, I don't know, housing policy. And, and I thank them for it. And then I say, but I don't actually care what you think. And I do this to get a rise out of them. And everybody mm-hmm. kind of looks at each other and goes, and I, I say, no, 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 no. Like, I, I care about like what you're bringing to this process. I care about your experience. But here's my problem as the organizer. I could only choose 36 people. And your name came up randomly. And there were 600 other people who wished they were sitting in your chair today. And 
of the 10,000 households that got a letter, maybe there were 3,000 who wanted to volunteer, but 2,400 had other commitments, right? And just couldn't take the time, but wanted to be there. So one hand saying to my 36 participants, the members of the assembly, that their job is really, really important. I'm also decentering them in terms of like their individual status on the assembly, because I'm saying your job is actually to represent the needs of strangers, people who I can't bring into the room. They wouldn't fit. We don't have enough time. And so you have to use your empathic imagination to try, as I said, to get into the shoes of other people. And the incredible thing is after I do this, this kind of shtick and, and sort of try and frame it for people in a different way, they actually sit up a little straighter. I, I, I really need to videotape this sometime because the mood in the room changes. I just told them I don't care what they think. Then I tell them that their, their responsibility is much greater than themselves. They owe it to their community and everybody else to work really hard and to try and come up with something that works for everyone. And people sit up straighter. And I think it's because they get it. They get that this is important and they don't know how to do it, but they're going to give it a try. And that's one of the most beautiful moments in these processes. Yeah. Have you, have you interviewed people when it's done on how they felt about the experience? Yeah, it's transformative for some people. And look, there've been lots of academics who've now done studies on this and have published extensively. I like to talk about it as democratic fitness. You know, we have the idea of civic literacy. It's good if people know this bit of history and, you know, who their president is or who the first president was and stuff like that. But democratic fitness is a sense of personal efficacy, agency, voice, an ability to collaborate to shared ends. And I think people really have an increased sense of their ability and self-worth as a result of serving on these assemblies. And I Mm. contrast that with voting. I don't think most people walk away from the ballot like, they feel like they've done their public duty. That's great. But it doesn't reach them in the same way. So, you know, I, I've had members come back to me saying I, I, I was unemployed. I had a long-term disability. I didn't think I could get back into the labor market. And after having volunteered and participated, uh, one of them quite recently asked me for a letter of reference. And, and she ended up getting a job, funnily enough, at our elections agency. So she she not only was ready to work again, but she wanted to do something that was uh, that was about democracy. So it, it has a it has a big impact on people. You know, we give people certificates of public service at the end, and every year I get one or two phone calls of people who um, say, "Ah, shit! You know, my certificate fell off the wall and it broke. Could you send me another one?" And I'm like, "That was just four Saturdays, like eight years ago. Does it really mean that much?" Well, yes. Because for most people, this will be the single most consequential and empowering thing that they will have a chance to do in their lives. Because we don't live in societies where, where frankly, we, we really care that much in a meaningful way about what others think. And there's no wonder why people feel so estranged from politics at City Hall, that the state capitol, that Congress feels so far away because they never, they can never imagine themselves ever being close to it, much less respected by it. So you you. share that, and it's it's very powerful. Well, excellent. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? And can they look for opportunities to be on one of these these advisory boards or councils? And if so, where can they go? 
Well, the, the thing to do for anyone interested in our work at Mass is uh, to visit our website. It's masslbp.com, and that's Mass led by people, masslbp.com. And, and there are reports from the 40-some assemblies and their guides on how to run these in your local community. Um, there are some other organizations in the U.S. Um, that are starting to do this work, Democracy Together, Healthy Democracy, uh, to name just two. Um, but really, you know, for folks who are very interested in this stuff, Google OECD, Deliberative Wave, and you can read about the quite incredible projects, uh, including a permanent randomly selected council uh, that has just been created to advise the mayor of Paris. So we're starting to see randomly selected bodies sit next to elected ones so that people who are volunteers get to work alongside people who are professional politicians. So watch this space. Okay, excellent. Peter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's uh, this is really interesting stuff, and I hope it uh, I hope it comes to fruition in many places. I think it'll really be a big help. So, thank you for the work you do. I appreciate it and appreciate your interest. Take care. Hey, before you go, if you're looking for a nutritional advantage, be sure to check out AminoCo's 100% science backed perform formula. It was created by former Harvard professor and world renowned clinical researcher Dr. Robert Wolf. As a competitive athlete. Dr. Wolf has completed 62 marathons in under 2 hours and 30 minutes, set national age group records, and is still running and fueling his body with Perform at age 75. I recommend you give Perform a try. It's three times more effective on a gram-for-gram basis than any protein source. The AminoCo is giving our listeners 30% off all AminoCo products, including Perform. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com genius. Use coupon code GENIUS for a 30% discount at checkout. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.